morning offering. I bless the night that nourished my heart to set the ghosts of longing free into the flow and figure of dream that went to harvest from the dark bread for the hunger no one sees. All that is, inter- that is eternal in me welcome the wonder of this day, the field of brightness it creates, offering time for each thing to arise and illuminate. I place on the altar of dawn the quiet loyalty of breath, the tent of thought where I shelter, wave of desire I am sure to, and all beauty drawn to the eye. May my mind come alive today to the invisible geography that invites me to new frontiers, to break the dead shells of yesterdays, to risk being disturbed and changed. May I have the courage today to live the life that I would love, to postpone my dream no longer, but do at last what I came here for and waste my heart on fear no more. A Journey by Nikki Giovanni. It's a journey that I propose. I'm not the guide, nor technical assistant. I will be your fellow passenger. Though the rail has been ridden, winter clouds over autumn's exuberant quilt. We must provide our own guideposts. I have heard from previous visitors The road washes out sometimes, and passengers are compelled to continue groping or turn back. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of rough spots or lonely times. I don't fear the success of this endeavor. I am Ra in a space not to be discovered, but invented. I promise you nothing. I accept your promise of the same. We're simply riding a wave that may carry or crash. It's a journey, and I want to go. The Envoy of Mr. Cogito. Go where those others went, to the dark boundary, for the golden fleece of nothingness, your last prize. Go upright among those who are on their knees, among those with their backs turned, and those toppled in the dust. You were saved not in order to live, You have little time. You must give testimony. Be courageous when the mind deceives you. Be courageous in the final account. Only this is important. And let your helpless anger be like the sea 
whenever you hear the voice of the insulted and beaten. Let your sister scorn not leave you. For the informers, executioners, cowards, they will win. They will go to your funeral with relief, will throw a lump of earth. The wood borer will write your smoothed over biography. And do not forgive. Truly, it is not your power to forgive in the name of those betrayed at dawn. Beware, however, of unnecessary pride. Keep looking at your clown's face in the mirror. Repeat, I was called. Weren't there better ones than I? Beware of dryness of heart. Love the morning spring, the bird with an unknown name, the winter oak. Light on a wall, the splendor of the sky. They don't need your warm breath. They are there to say, no one will console you. Be vigilant. When the light on the mountains gives the sign, arise and go. As long as blood turns in the breast, your dark star. Repeat old incantations of humanity's fables and legends, because this is how you will attain the good you will not attain. Repeat great words. Repeat them stubbornly, like those crossing the desert who perished in the sand. And they will reward you with what they have at hand with the whip of laughter, with murder on a garbage heap. Go because only in this way will you be admitted to the company of cold skulls, to the company of your ancestors, Gilgamesh, Hector, Roland, the defenders of the kingdom without limit and the city of ashes. Be faithful. Go. One of my mentors always introduces the ancient wisdom stories with these words None of this happened. All of it's true. It reminds us that the ancient stories hold truths, and that's why they're told over and over and over again. It reminds us that these ancient stories are not history. They did not happen in fact, but that is not why the story matters. They are not historical truth, but they are truth. So I have an ancient story to tell you today. None of this happened. All of it's true. The story is set in ancient Persia in the 5th century before the Common Era. The kingdoms of Israel and Judah had been defeated, and the members of the Jewish elite were taken into exile in Babylon and then later Persia. That, that context is history, but the story that comes within it is not. The story that I'm telling is in the book of Esther in the Hebrew Bible. So once upon a time, 
there is a king named Ahasuerus, and his queen disobeys an order, so he takes, her, takes away her royal title and seeks a new queen. And all of the most, most beautiful women in the empire come to the palace so the king can choose his next queen. Mordecai is a low-level official in the king's palace, and he is also a Jew, which is an important detail for our story. When he hears about the search for a new queen, he volunteers his niece Esther, a beautiful orphan who he has raised. He tells her not to tell anyone that she's Jewish. So Esther goes to the palace where she is among many other young women hoping to become queen. They are cared for by palace servants and given cosmetic treatments for a year. And then each each takes their turn with the king, spending a night with him. And when Esther has her turn, the king declares that he loves her more than any other women, and she becomes the new queen. Meanwhile, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, overhears two palace guards plotting to assassinate the king. He passes this information along to Esther, who tells the king, and that plot is thwarted. The fact that Mordecai told Esther about the assassination plot is recorded in the king's record book, and that's another detail that matters later. Now our villain enters the scene. Haman is the king's top official. He and Mordecai do not get along. The reason is never fully explained. But one day, some time after, after Esther has become queen, Mordecai fails to pay Haman the respect Haman thinks he deserves. And so in response, Haman decides to destroy all of the Jews in the kingdom. He approaches the king one day and says, there is a certain people scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different. Of, from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued for their destruction, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. Haman bribes the king, so he will commit genocide. The king has no animosity to the Jews, but he lets policy be made by the highest bidder. So the king then issues a declaration. Eleven months from now, all the Jews in the kingdom will be killed. Of course, the Jews are frightened. Some weep, some moan, some mourn, some start strategizing. Mordecai sends a message to Esther encouraging her to speak to the king about this, to change his mind. Esther is frightened, too. She knows that the king has a temper, and it would be breaking protocol for her to approach him like this. He might get rid of her the way he got rid of the last queen. Esther has a pretty good life. Why should she stick her neck out that way? We can infer from the text that Esther is not very observant when it comes to Jewish practice. By this point in the story, she's been living in the castle for over a year, and no one knows her religious identity. If she was observant, she'd be keeping kosher, 
She'd be following other distinctive Jewish practices. Her servants, at least, would have noticed, and her identity would have been revealed. But it's not. Her, her Jewish identity is still a secret. So we know that she's not very observant. And that's the only way this story makes sense. Maybe Esther isn't particularly connected to the Jewish community. Maybe she thinks her high position and her lack of practice will keep her alive while the Jews around her are killed. Mordecai anticipates this and responds in another message to Esther, encouraging her to act. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows, he says, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Esther is in the right place at the right time to save her people, so she decides to act. Meanwhile, the villain Haman is not content with his plan to kill all the Jews in 11 months. He wants to see Mordecai dead sooner. He starts building a gallows and hatching a plan to have Mordecai hanged. He works on this late into the night. And that same night, the king can't sleep. He asks his servant to bring him his record book. The text doesn't say why, but I suspect he intends to read the boring records until he can fall asleep. But he does not find a boring record. He finds the details of the assassination attempt that Mordecai stopped earlier, the one I mentioned and told you to remember. The king realizes he needs to honor Mordecai for his courage, for saving the king's life. The next morning, Haman comes to see the king. He's hoping to have a death warrant signed for Mordecai. And the, but the king takes the conversation in a different direction. The king asks Haman, what should be done to honor the man who the king wishes to honor? And Haman thinks that's about him. So he replies, for the man the king wishes to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse that the king has ridden with a royal crown on its head, let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials and let him robe the man the king wishes to honor. Let him conduct that man on horseback through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done for the man whom the king wishes to honor. And the king responds, that's a great idea. Can you do that for Mordecai? Haman does and is enraged. <laughs> Shortly after that, Haman and the king go to a banquet thrown by Esther. The king is pleased with the banquet and says he will give Esther whatever she wants, up to half his kingdom. So Esther seizes the moment. She says, let my life be given me and the lives of my people. That is my request. For we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. The king grants her request. He rescinds the order to have all of the Jews destroyed. And he asks Esther, who is it that has planned to destroy your people? Esther responds, this wicked Haman. And the king orders Haman to be hung on the very gallows that he had built for Mordecai. 
Esther has saved her people, and Haman is no longer. Mordecai is promoted and takes Haman's former post as chief advisor. In every corner of the kingdom, the Jews celebrate the courage of Esther and Mordecai. This is a powerful story. A story of palace intrigue and courage. A story of being in the right place at the right time. It is a story told annually on the Jewish holiday of Purim, which begins next Saturday night. Traditionally, Purim is celebrated by the community reading the book of Esther together. Children are encouraged to dress up in costume and to drown out every reading of Haman's name with booing, hissing, and noisemakers. And adults celebrate by drinking wine until they can no longer tell the difference between the phrases, cursed be Haman and blessed be Mordecai. It really sounds like a great party. (laughs) But it's not just a party. On Purim, people remember the courage of Esther and Mordecai and all of the others who have kept the Jewish people safe from destruction across the centuries. A few days ago, I spoke to Rabbi Matt Zerwick, who serves Temple B'nai Israel, the Reformed Jewish congregation here in Kalamazoo, about this story. And he shared that for him and his people, it's especially meaningful this year to remember the story. It feels more important to remember the story as the Jewish community in our country is faced with increasing threats made against them and against Jewish community centers and rising incidents of anti-Semitic vandalism and violence. He also showed me a picture of his child in her Purim costume. So it's a 10-month-old dressed up like a fuzzy pink monster. It's, It's so adorable. If you don't know Rabbi Matt, you'll all get a chance to know him this spring. He and I are doing a pulpit swap in May, so I will preach to his community, and he will come and preach to all of us here. And there's a long and beautiful history connecting our two congregations in Kalamazoo. And we get to write the next chapter. In the book of Esther, Mordecai tells his niece, Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for such a time as this. He tells her that she is at the right place at the right time to act to save her people. For such a time as this is the title of our, my sermon and our worship today because that's a phrase that has been rattling in my head in recent months. I've been reflecting on it and figuring out what I am called to for such a time as this and what we might be called to as a congregation. Because we have seen public policies shift dramatically in our country There have been immigration bans and now lowered protection for transgender students in public schools. So many people of so many identities are feeling less safe in our country. What am I called to do for such a time as this? And what are we called to do as a church in such a time as this? There's one possibility that I want to offer you offer up to us all today. Something that might be something that we are positioned to do as a community. We have been approached by some of our partners 
here in Kalamazoo about becoming a home to a person or a family at risk for deportation. They have asked if someone or maybe a few someones could come and live in our church. They have asked if we can provide a temporary home to a person or a family at risk for deportation with an especially sympathetic case. Perhaps a parent at risk of being separated from young children who are U.S. citizens, or a young adult who was brought to this country illegally as a child and has known no other home than Southwest Michigan. By housing a person or people, we might be able to give them time they need to get a hearing and a chance to stay in this country. And we'd also become part of a movement calling attention to injustice and advocating for a change in our immigration policies. We would be engaging in civil disobedience and publicly claiming that our current immigration system goes against our values, goes against our commitment to the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We would join with a much larger movement advocating for reform of our immigration system, working in all kinds of ways. We have been asked to become a sanctuary church. We would be stepping into the ancient tradition of houses of worship as, sanct- as sanctuary, a tradition that is even older than the story I just told. And at some points in the history between now and then, churches legally had sanctuary status, including in medieval Europe. Law enforcement could not enter. That is not the case here and now though current immigration and customs enforcement policy states not to raid schools, hospitals, and houses of worship. The modern sanctuary movement relies not on law, but on church's status as a moral authority, a voice for our values in the public square. Sanctuary is something we can only offer because we are a religious congregation. And my question is, should we answer this call? Several years ago, we couldn't even have explored this question because several years ago, there were no showers here. Someone could not live here without showers or some other way to bathe. And you all included showers in the bathrooms that are part of our building expansion, a project we'll be talking about a lot more in the next few weeks as we kick off our stewardship and capital campaigns. But the showers make it possible for us to even entertain this possibility. And I know those of you who are here, when the design and everything was getting put together, that wasn't part of that decision. But I want to lift up that that expansion opens up so many possibilities for us here, including this one. Just because we can do this doesn't mean that we should. We know that. We know we need to think and learn and reflect before we make a decision this significant in the life of our congregation. We know this is not a decision that I as the minister can make alone for us or that the board could make. And so our hope is that we will make this decision together. To get to our decision, we're going to be learning and talking about this a lot in the coming months. On top of everything else, we're going to be learning and talking about in the coming months. There will be opportunities to learn about our current immigration system and how we got to this place where 11 million people are in this country without status. Where so many 
industries rely on the labor of these undocumented people. We're going to seek legal advice and find out what risks we would be taking if we did this. We're going to be talking about what it would mean to engage in civil disobedience together as a congregation, to take a public stand together. And I know that the history of People's Church has not been taking these public stands necessarily. And so we'd be figuring out how to do this in a new way. There's been lots of encouragement to take stands as individuals, but we know that it hasn't always been People's Church signing on to things like this. So if, if in all this learning and reflecting and partnership building, it becomes clear that we as a community want to act in this way, we will bring this to a vote at our meeting in May, our annual congregational meeting. And if it becomes clear that this is contentious, that bringing this to a vote would make us weaker rather than stronger, we will not vote. We won't have a vote. So in this time, as we start to explore this possibility, I invite you to focus on do we want to do this, not how do we do this? Because, it, because I think the logistics will be best worked out once we have a commitment to do it. And it's much easier to try to imagine what room we would give up and work on the details of how we would share our kitchen than do we want to take this big step? Is this the right thing for us to do? So we act in so many ways. People's people as individuals and, and as a group to make our values real in the world. And the question that we will be answering about this in the coming months is if we want to live our values in this particular way. So let us discern, reflect, and explore what this particular moment is calling out for us to do as a community. May we act together and independently to bring more love and more justice to such a time as this. So may we be courageous like Esther and Mordecai. May we keep on moving forward. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.